Hello, welcome to Notable Nobels, a podcast about the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine. My name is Harrison Doolin. I am a PhD candidate at the University of California, Riverside, and I will be your host for this web series. The purpose of this series is to trace key advancements made in the biological and medical sciences over the past 120 years or so, and we're using the Nobel Prizes in Physiology or Medicine as a guide. Now, every career has its highest prize, and the highest prize for a scientist is the Nobel Prize. It's the most prestigious award a scientist can receive, and it marks discoveries that have made a profound impact on our understanding of biology and our ability to treat diseases. Today, we will be examining the 1954 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, which was awarded to John Enders, Thomas Weller, and Frederick Robbins. The Nobel Assembly at the Karolinska Institute chose to give Enders, Weller, and Robbins the award, quote, for their discovery of the ability of poliomyelitis viruses to grow in cultures of various types of tissue, unquote. We'll go over some of the pathophysiology of poliomyelitis disease, also called infantile paralysis. Then we'll discuss Enders, Wellers, and Robbins' discovery that polioviruses could be cultured in vitro, how that discovery led to the creation of the first effective polio vaccines, and we'll end by looking at the state of polio eradication, a mission decades in the making. But first, a little bit about the Nobel Prize recipients. Enders, Weller, and Robbins were bright men born to privilege. Weller's father was a professor in the pathology department at the University of Michigan. Robbins was the nephew of a previous Nobel laureate, and Enders was the son of a millionaire banking CEO. Ender's entry to science was a little more roundabout than most people. He was born in Connecticut in 1897 and entered Yale University in 1915. He dropped out of Yale in 1917 to become a pilot in the U.S. Air Force during World War I. After the war, he returned to Yale and finished his degree in 1919. He tried to be a businessman in the real estate sector of Connecticut, but found the career dissatisfying, so he enrolled in graduate school at Harvard, where he spent four years studying English literature with the goal of becoming an English teacher. He eventually became dissatisfied with this career choice as well, but his time at Harvard brought him into contact with several medical school students and professors. Their influence eventually led him to pursue a PhD in bacteriology and immunology at Harvard, which he completed in 1930. He remained at Harvard for the next 16 years on the teaching staff, where he also began research into various pathogenic bacteria and viruses. Over time, he became an established expert in virus research, and in 1946, he was asked to start a new infectious disease laboratory at the Children's Medical Center in Boston. He recruited many talented researchers to the laboratory, including Weller and Robbins, it was at the Children's Medical Center that the trio would make their discovery that would lead to an effective polio vaccine. So let's talk for a minute about polio disease and the viruses that cause it. There are actually three different serotypes of poliovirus, which we simply refer to as poliovirus type 1, type 2, and type 3. Immunity to one type of poliovirus does not prevent disease when infected with the other types, so a person can potentially get infected three times. The full name of polio disease is poliomyelitis. Poliomyelitis is a compound of two Greek words, polio meaning gray and myelon meaning marrow. Then poliomyelitis has that itis Latin suffix at the end that, as we mentioned in previous episodes, means inflammation. So poliomyelitis is the inflammation of the gray marrow, and gray marrow is a reference to the spinal cord. The most noticeable feature of polio 
is the paralysis that occurs when the virus reaches the spinal cord. The polio virus is transmitted via the fecal-oral route. It replicates in the cells that line your gastrointestinal tract, so when the virus gets in your mouth, it begins to replicate in the epithelial cells of your digestive tract. Once infected, the cells will make more copies of the virus, and eventually those cells will die. The cells that die will slough off into the intestines to be released with the feces. The virus is very resilient, able to survive the harsh conditions of the stomach and intestines, and it is also relatively stable in the environment outside the body. So eventually, the virus can be picked up by an unsuspecting person, and if the virus gets inside that person's mouth, the fecal-oral route of transmission is completed, and the new person gets infected. The virus infection can sometimes spread beyond the epithelial cells of the gut and enter the blood. From the blood, the virus can spread to the rest of the body. Most of the time, in about 99% of cases, the virus gets cleared from the blood and the gut, and the person makes a full recovery without any lasting effects. However, in about 1% of cases, the virus gets into the central nervous system. The central nervous system includes your brain and your spinal cord, and polioviruses are particularly good at infecting and replicating in the motor neurons of the spinal cord. These motor neurons are the ones that control your muscles, so when the virus infects and kills these motor neurons, you become paralyzed. The degree of paralysis varies depending on which neurons get infected, but it often causes lower limb paralysis. In some cases, the virus can infect the upper part of the spinal cord, resulting in destruction of the nerves that control the diaphragm. When those nerves die, the infected person can no longer control their breathing, and unless they are hooked up to a ventilator, the person will suffocate and die. Many of the photos you see of polio epidemics have wards of people hooked up to machines called iron lungs. The iron lungs would do the person's breathing for them, and they are the precursors of the ventilators being used for patients with severe COVID-19 today. Polio disease seems to be very old. There is some evidence that it existed in ancient Egypt. But polio epidemics, widespread polio disease, seems to be a product of modernity. Before the end of the 19th century, cases of polio paralysis were relatively rare. Then epidemics of paralytic polio began cropping up more frequently. The first reported epidemic in the United States was in 1894, when an outbreak in Vermont led to 132 cases of the disease. One of the more noticeable outbreaks occurred in New York City in 1916, which left over 9,000 people paralyzed. So what was going on? Why all the new outbreaks? Well, there is a hypothesis, a pretty cool hypothesis, that polio was a, quote, disease of modern sanitation. This hypothesis suggests that pre-1900, poliovirus circulated freely in the water. The virus is transmitted fecal-orally, and most people were infected shortly after birth by drinking contaminated water. Getting infected so young did not result in severe disease, presumably because infants have antibodies that they get from their mother. These antibodies can protect the infant for about six months after birth. Those antibodies from mom kept the infection from reaching the infant's central nervous system, but the infection was sufficient for the infants to mount their own immune responses so they would be protected for life. However, the hypothesis supposes, with the introduction of modern sanitation that involved treating the drinking water to make it safe, 
polio infections began happening later in life, at a time when infants no longer had those protective antibodies from mom. Without that protection, the virus was often capable of causing more severe disease. So, in a weird twist, the increased hygiene of the first part of the 20th century may have given us more polio epidemics. The disease continued to strike in seasonal summer epidemics during the first half of the 20th century. Many kids would leave school for summer break, then return in the fall to find a classmate's chair empty, a sign that polio had claimed another victim. Now, in the face of all this suffering and death, there were scientists working to understand the disease and develop a cure. The first breakthrough in understanding polio came in 1908, when the Austrian scientist and future winner of the 1930 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, Karl Landsteiner, discovered that polio was a viral disease. He took spinal tissue from a boy who had died of polio, ground up the tissue, and passed it through a filter that contained holes big enough for viruses to pass through, but not big enough to allow larger pathogens like bacteria, fungi, or parasites to pass through. He then took the resulting filtrate and used it to infect two monkeys, and the result was that the monkeys developed polio, thus proving polio was a viral disease. He was also able to take the spinal cords of those infected monkeys, pass the ground-up tissue through a filter, and the resulting filtrate was also able to sicken infected monkeys. It made sense that Landsteiner was able to isolate the virus from the spinal cord. After all, it was clear to clinicians that polio was a disease of the nervous system, but it was not so clear how the disease was spread. Many people thought polio was strictly a disease of the nervous system, and a hypothesis was put forth that polio infected the brain through the olfactory bulb after a person breathed the virus in through their nose. Then, once inside the brain, the virus would spread to the spinal cord and cause paralysis. This idea was dominant for the first decades of the 20th century, and it came with a rather problematic conclusion for growing polio viruses in the lab. Since everyone assumed polio was strictly a disease of nervous tissue, if people wanted to make more polio virus, either for experiments or for vaccines, the assumption was they would need living nervous tissue to infect with virus. However, there weren't any ways at the time for growing nervous tissue in culture dishes, so scientists had to resort to continuously passing the virus through the spinal cords of monkeys, a laborious and expensive task. However, evidence began accumulating that there might be more to polio than just the nervous system. In 1941, two scientists working at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital, named Albert Sabin and Robert Ward, showed that polio did not infect the olfactory bulb, which really put a dent in the notion that the virus was airborne. Then in 1947, polio virus was isolated from sewage, thus suggesting a possible fecal-oral route of transmission, which would include virus replication in the digestive system. But the dominant hypothesis was still that polio was a disease chiefly of the nervous system. It was therefore a surprise to many people when in 1949, Enders, Weller, and Robbins announced their discovery that the virus could be grown in non-neuronal cells. The trio's discovery was another of those rather unexpected, serendipitous events in science. The team had been working on methods to grow different viruses in culture dishes, which would make studying the viruses easier and also make it easier to grow large batches of the virus for future experiments. The group 
wasn't even particularly interested in polio. They had been working on growing varicella virus, the virus that causes chickenpox. They were attempting to grow the varicella virus in human embryonic skin, muscle, and intestinal cells. They decided, you know, just for the heck of it, to also try infecting the cells with polio, not really expecting the virus to grow. It was then a big surprise to them when the virus not only replicated, but downright thrived in their cultures. Again, these weren't cells of the nervous system, so nobody was really expecting the virus to grow. But grow it did. They found they could increase the virus loads to more than a billion times what they started with. Their results, published in the journal Science, caused a lot of excitement. It was apparent that poliovirus could be grown in cell culture and in cells other than the troublesome neuronal cells. People began testing other cell culture techniques to grow the virus and found the virus could be grown to very high titers. Eventually, vaccines made from virus propagated in cultured cells were brought into clinical trials, and the Nobel Committee at the Karolinska Institute, recognizing the significance of Enders, Wellers, and Robbins' discovery, awarded them the 1954 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Here the story shifts to be less about Enders, Weller, and Robbins, and more about the two men behind the production of the first effective polio vaccines. These two men were Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin. Jonas Salk was born in New York City in 1914 and earned a bachelor's degree in chemistry from the City College of New York before entering medical school at New York University. After graduating medical school in 1941, Salk went to work at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, where he began research in virology. In 1947, he was awarded his own lab at the University of Pittsburgh, where he continued to work on viruses, particularly poliovirus type 1, 2, and 3. The news in 1949 that Enders, Weller, and Robbins had successfully grown poliovirus in cells spurred Salk's efforts to develop an effective polio vaccine. Salk began testing growing poliovirus in different cell types and found that the virus could grow very well in monkey kidney cells. Salk began developing a culture technique that minimized the number of monkeys needed to seed the cells and still gave very high virus titers. Once he was able to grow poliovirus efficiently, the next step in creating the vaccine was crippling the virus so it wouldn't cause disease but could still protect somebody who encountered the virus. Salk used a chemical called formalin to inactivate the poliovirus. The formalin chemically alters the poliovirus proteins, which prevents the proteins from functioning properly. Without those functioning proteins, the virus is incapable of causing disease. Salk tested his formalin-inactivated vaccine in monkeys, and after seeing positive results, started giving the vaccine to people in 1952. He found the vaccine was safe and people given the vaccine developed antibodies to the polioviruses. But to fully test if the vaccine was effective against polio, Salk would need to conduct a large-scale clinical trial. Now, conducting clinical trials for vaccines is a costly and time-consuming process that requires a lot of resources, both in labor and in finances. Salk was working as an academic scientist at the University of Pittsburgh, and universities certainly don't have the resources to pull off large vaccine trials like that. Salk would need outside resources, and so he turned to the National Foundation of Infantile Paralysis, which was later renamed the March of Dimes. No story of polio vaccines would be complete without mention of the March of Dimes, and I'm excited to share it because it's such like a 
feel-good story and represents a wonderful alternative to the political polarization we are seeing today over COVID vaccines. The March of Dimes is a nonprofit organization that was founded in 1938 by President Franklin D. Roosevelt with the specific goal of combating polio. Roosevelt himself was diagnosed with the disease and was a major champion in the fight against polio. The March of Dimes represented a novel means of funding disease research. The organization's main funding came chiefly from average, everyday Americans who wanted to help children with polio. In 1938, Roosevelt helped organize a fundraising effort for the foundation, and the following appeal was made for Americans to send in money to fight polio. Quote, it takes only 10 dimes to make a dollar, and if a million people send in only one dime, the total would be $100,000. Well, that first pitch ended up with over $268,000 in mostly dimes going to the foundation, and the March of Dimes would go on to spend millions of dollars in the fight against polio. To honor Roosevelt's efforts, the Treasury Department placed his portrait on the American dime after his death in 1945 a tribute to one man's efforts to eradicate a deadly disease, and his face has remained on the coin to this very day. The March of Dimes organization grew into a vast network of local activists and organizers who could speak to the community about developments in polio research and treatment. So when, in January 1953, Salk announced to the March of Dimes that his vaccine was safe and elicited an immune response, the foundation helped him organize a clinical trial. The foundation supplied the funds to purchase the vaccine from pharmaceutical companies approved to manufacture it, and also provided the infrastructure for recruiting children for the trial. In total, the foundation would spend an amount of money equal to $5 billion in today's currency, and it would enroll 1.8 million participants in 44 states. At the time, it was the largest clinical trial of its kind ever performed, and people were paying attention, eager to see what the result would be. Here's a quote by Paul Offit to put things in perspective. Quote, On May 31, 1954, a Gallup poll showed that more Americans knew about the field trial of Jonas Salk's polio vaccine than knew the full name of the President of the United States, Dwight David Eisenhower. This was because more Americans had participated in the funding, development, and testing of the polio vaccine than had participated in the nomination and election of the President. Unquote. <laughs> There was an amazing sense of national unity behind the vaccine and the desire to make polio history. The results of the trial were broadcasted on April 12, 1955. 100% of the polio deaths and 94% of the cases of severe polio were in unvaccinated children. The vaccine worked, and the country was ecstatic. The vaccine was approved for general use, and people were lining up everywhere to get the shot. Now, I look at that and I wonder, how did we get from that kind of national unity to the divisiveness we are seeing today over vaccines? Granted, not everyone was on board with Salk's vaccine at first, but the public support for vaccines back in his day was miles away from what we see today. So what happened? Well, one thing that happened was an incident which became known as the Cutter Incident. Remember we mentioned that Salk used a chemical called formalin to inactivate the polio virus for his vaccine? Well, in some of the first lots to be used after the Salk vaccine was approved, 
a company called Cutter Laboratories released polio vaccine that had not been properly inactivated. The vaccine lots still contained live polio virus, and the result was that 120,000 people were accidentally injected with live virus, and 10 people died. The backlash from this incident has morphed over the years and grown, and can still be felt today in the modern anti-vax movement. Obviously, something like that happening doesn't do much to furnish trust in vaccines or pharmaceutical companies, I get that. But here's the thing though. Despite the facts of the Cutter incident and the resulting loss of public trust, Salk's vaccine continued to be used. And the result was that by 1961, paralytic polio cases in the U.S. dropped from 25,000 cases per year to 2,500 cases per year. That's really good. This was a great vaccine. Now, it did have a couple drawbacks, however. The first was that growing the virus was dangerous, and also the formalin inactivation added an extra step in production, which also added an extra financial cost. Additionally, and importantly, the Salk vaccine did not prevent people from getting infected with the polio virus. The Salk vaccine was injected into people's arms, and the antibodies people got from the vaccine worked very well at preventing the virus from spreading from the gut to the spinal cord, and thus the vaccine prevented severe disease. However, the Salk vaccine did not do so well at preventing the virus from initially infecting the gastrointestinal tract, so people could still get infected even after getting the Salk vaccine. People wondered if there might be a way to create a live attenuated version of polioviruses that could be used as a vaccine. Live attenuated vaccines, like the yellow fever virus vaccine discussed in the previous episode of this podcast, are weakened viruses that can still infect cells, but are too weak to cause disease. Because these viruses are already weakened genetically, they are safer and cheaper to grow than their ancestral strains. You may recall how the yellow fever virus vaccine was produced by continuously letting the virus infect different types of cells over and over again until the virus lost its lethality. Well, a man named Albert Sabin decided to try something similar with polioviruses. Albert Sabin was born in 1918 in Poland, but emigrated with his parents to the United States in 1921. Like Jonas Salk, he graduated from New York University with a medical degree in 1931, and in 1939, he went to work at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, where he began his work on polio. Sabin had been passaging the three different polioviruses in monkeys, but after he heard of Enders, Weller, and Robin's success at growing the virus in cultured cells, he switched to growing the virus in cell culture. He eventually ended up with attenuated versions of each of the three polioviruses that failed to produce disease in monkeys. After performing a small clinical trial in the U.S. to test the vaccine's safety, large-scale efficacy trials were performed in the Soviet Union from 1956 through 1961. The result was that the vaccine was found to be highly effective at preventing paralytic polio and also at providing intestinal immunity to prevent the initial infection of the gut. In 1961, the United States approved the Sabin oral polio vaccine, and this brought the rates of natural paralytic polio down from 2,500 cases per year to zero cases per year in 1979. 
Since that time, there has been no indigenous cases of polio in the United States. The eradication of polio from the U.S. and other first world countries was a remarkable achievement. Enders, Weller, and Robbins reported their Nobel Prize winning discovery in 1949, and in only three decades, a disease that had been around for centuries was gone from the U.S. The CDC estimates that polio vaccines have prevented an estimated 3 million cases of paralytic polio. Like, wow, that's so cool. The expectation was that it wouldn't be long before polio would be completely eradicated from the globe. Humans are the only natural host for the virus, and if the virus can't find a susceptible human host, it will eventually die. The World Health Organization made it a goal in 1988 to eliminate polio from the world by 2005. That's a really amazing and ambitious goal, as it turns out a little bit too ambitious. To date, the only virus people have successfully eradicated is smallpox, but you know what? We are so very close to crossing off polio. China was declared polio-free in 2000, India was declared polio-free in 2014, and last year, Nigeria became the last African country to be declared free of wild-type polio. Now, the only two countries that have circulating wild-type polio virus are Pakistan and Afghanistan. The general poverty and political tensions in those countries have made vaccinations tricky, but hopefully the global plan to eradicate polio will keep up the good work and we can say goodbye to polio once and for all. It kind of makes you wonder, though, like, if we can successfully get rid of polio, like, which we're so close to doing, well, what disease will be next on the chopping block? What disease will we be able to look back on 30 years from now as just a thing of history? I don't know, but you know what? It's a really exciting time for science. <laughs> well, that concludes this episode of Notable Nobels. This episode was recorded on December 27, 2021. I want to thank Digital Mind Productions for providing the music. Also, there was a lot of stuff about polio and polio vaccines I left out because of time. So if you want to know more, you can check out Dr. Vincent Racaniello's lectures on YouTube or Dr. Paul Offit's book, The Cutter Incident. Next time on Notable Nobels, we will be continuing our talk about viruses, but more specifically, we will be looking at the relationship between cancer and viruses and how a sick chicken in New York helped shape our understanding of how cancers can form. Want to know more? Well, listen next time to find out. Thanks so much for listening. See you then.